Hello, and thanks for tuning in to episode 4 of the Last Palabra podcast, my weekly attempt at capturing and dumping the flow of information in and out of my head for you all to listen to. This week we'll be talking about a very real, very scientific alternative to meat, permission to take our own life and suicide awareness week, and the Rugby World Cup, as well as other obscurities in my life and in the world around me. Welcome to another episode of my weekly podcast, The Last Palabra. I'm Jamie Coles, and I'm going to guide you through a week inside my head. I want to start with Tesla, though, because last week I criticized Tesla's autopilot for not being quite auto enough after a Model S crashed into the back of a part fire engine, of all things. I mean, how on earth do you miss a fire engine, even if you are automated? This week, it was announced that Tesla cars missed out on a list of safest cars because they actually don't crash enough. Every year, Swedish insurance company Folksum released the results of an annual study on the country's safest cars, a list that this year was dominated by the Toyota RAV4, with no Tesla models on there despite their autopilots and their usually early avoidance detection and automatic emergency braking, making them one of the safest cars available. The study also shows that the positive trend with cars becoming safer continues. A clear example of this, uh, and this is all good news, The risk of disability has decreased by 75% compared to the 1980s cars. And the risk of death in a car accident has decreased by almost 90%. That's huge in the space of, what, 39 years, more or less, 30 to 40 years. Like, 75% chance, less chance of becoming disabled and 90% less chance of dying in a car crash. In the survey, Volkswagen examined 324 car models and assessed their safety level based on real accidents. On the basis of these, as well as results of in-crash tests, and information on important safety equipment, the cars have since been ranked by safety, so safest first was the Toyota RAV4. Both of the typical contenders at the top, Volvos, Mercedes E-Class, BMW 5 Series, Audi A4s, there was a clear absence of electronic vehicles, Speaking to Swedish tech news site NY Technic, Folksum's head of research, Anders Kulgren, said that there's just not enough data. He said, we saw seven accidents with Tesla in this year's sample, and it's just not enough. Seven accidents, just seven accidents in a year. And so he says that sample's too little. Uh, He says they have very many safety systems and high security, which means that they may never be included in our lists. Hang on. There's not enough crash data to declare how safe the car is. Surely, Mr. Colgram of Folksum, a car that doesn't get into crashes in the first place is far safer than a car that gets into crashes but comes out okay. Despite my criticisms last week, it's reported that Teslas are among the safest vehicles on the road today. The electric car maker's Q2 2019 vehicle strategy report showed one accident for 3.27 million miles driven with autopilot engaged, compared to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration recorded an average one accident for every 498,000 miles driven. That's massive. That's like, what, six, nearly seven times safer than the average car, purely because it doesn't get into crashes. And as a result, there's not enough crash data for them to declare it a safe car on this this insurance uh, car safety ranking. Like, it's nuts. It doesn't make sense. Whilst at this time, I prefer to be completely in control of my own fate behind the wheel. Uh, I'd rather be doing it in a car which is going to help me avoid crashes completely than to hold it well should the worst happen, I guess. Uh, So, despite Tesla's autopilot crashing into the back of a a parked fire engine, um, I take it back. 
I'll admit when I'm wrong, uh, because this report is really, really quite clear. I want to take some time to talk about a bit of a difficult subject now, well, a really difficult subject. I want to talk about suicide. Last week was Suicide Prevention Week, and we saw like a flurry of posts to social media that range from calls to check in on your friends and family, calls for people that are maybe feeling down to reach out for help, as well as truly heartfelt messages reminding us of how valuable, but how delicate our lives are. If not to us, then at least to the people around us. One of the things that shocked me during Suicide Prevention Week was the level of awareness that people intend to bring to the public conversation, particularly on social media. I found this shocking because there were all kinds of awful statistics that were, were banded around, talking about the numbers of suicides or attempted suicides per year. And just 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 to talk about the numbers, like the sheer numbers, it's shocking because of the number. But I don't think this is the best way of drawing attention to such a serious issue just by saying how bad it is you know one of the reasons that i was shocked is maybe not the right word i kind of questioned what was going on was because i happened to be reading malcolm gladwell's book tipping point which is about epidemics and trends the book covers the rise of hush puppy shoes crime in new york and how sesame street helps kids learn their abcs the book's fascinating and i'd really recommend it but one of those case studies in the book was about teen suicide epidemic in Micronesian Islands. Bear with me. I know this is a, a pretty heavy topic, but I, it's something we need to talk about. And it's something in terms of epidemics and, and things that in, in terms of this book, it's it's interesting. Not because it's suicide, just because of the nature of it. The book explains that suicide became a social epidemic in these Micronesian Islands, much like fashion trends do. He tells the story of Seema, a teenager who one day has an argument with his father and finally hangs himself. At the time, suicide was almost unheard of in Micronesia. But within the intervening four decades, suicide has become hugely common in Micronesia, roughly eight times the suicide rate of the United States. The prevalence of suicide in Micronesia is particularly unusual because almost all of the suicide cases are, are a similar age group, a similar demographic, if you like, teenage boys who experience arguments with their families or lovers, it's due to a domestic issue. Now, Gladwell explains that there was a particularly high-profile high case of a scorned lover, a teenage boy, who killed himself. And this single but highly talked-about incident inspired a series of, I don't want to say copycat suicides, but basically that, like, it more and more, more teenage boys killed themselves on South Pacific Islands. This phenomenon was recognised with, uh, I mean, the same sort of phenomenon has been recognised with celebrity suicides. For example, when Marilyn Monroe killed herself, the national suicide rate apparently increased by 12% in the United States. Now, what's the explanation for this? Well, in the book, Gladwell writes about a study where headlines were correlated with instances uh, in the following days. He writes, stories about suicides resulted in an increase in single car crashes where the victim was the driver. Stories about suicide murders resulted in an increase in multiple car crashes in which the victim included both drivers and passengers. Stories about young people committing suicide resulted in more traffic fatalities involving young people, whereas stories about older people committing suicide res resulted in more traffic fatalities involving older people. 
And these patterns have been demonstrated on many occasions and, and all over the world. News coverage of a number of suicides by self-immolation, for example, in England in the late 1970s, prompted 82 suicides by self-immolation over the, follow the following year. So it's a clear phenomenon. And Gladwell writes that the instances, they don't necessarily inspire suicide, or at least not consciously. But instead, instead they give a kind of unconscious permission. He writes that this permission given by the initial act of suicide in other words, isn't it? Isn't that? It's not an invitation to the vulnerable, but more like a, a highly detailed set of instructions specific to a certain people in certain situations who choose to die in certain certain ways. It's not a gesture. It's it's almost like speech. I decided to dig a bit deeper into this to see if it were true of perhaps maybe the highest profile suicides in recent history. For example, the tragic passing of beloved Hollywood actor Robin Williams. A quick. Google search and the headlines couldn't be clearer. A Times headline reads, Suicide spiked after Robbie Williams' death, study says. Psychology Today published a report titled, Robin Williams, Death and Subsequent Suicide Contagion. The statistics are astounding, with a study revealing that the widespread media coverage may have contributed to a 10% increase in suicides. A study by David Fink, a doctoral candidate in epidemiology at the Columbia University, Mailman School of Public Health says when you looked at the data you didn't need statistics to see that something happened. It says you see this very large spike in August and you can just tell that something is off. Whilst the research doesn't prove that William's death and the resulting news coverage and social media response caused this spike in suicides, a number of parallels suggest that it at least played a part, Fink says. For one thing, the jump was particularly significant among men ages 30 to 44, a demographic similar to that of the actor, and a disproportionate number of the victims also died by strangulation, as many news outlets reported that Williams did, according to the, the study. It's for this very reason that the World Health Organization has guidelines uh, for responsible reporting on suicides, uh, so not to divulge too many details or even offer justification, and, and to not sort of inspire this kind of reaction the guidelines were apparently strayed from shall we say reporting on robin williams in even more recent history uh, the netflix show 13 reasons why came under fire as it allegedly inspired teen suicide now i watched the first two series in the show the third one's just come out um it honestly i didn't particularly enjoy it i i wouldn't recommend it but i know it's wildly popular but i watched the show and i believe that it was firmly against bullying, and it tried to encourage us all to be kinder to one another, with suicide kind of shown as this desperate last resort after a truly appalling series of incidents that that bring the protagonist to this point where she takes her life, in a very graphic scene, in fact. And I remember reading really, really sceptically reports that criticised the show, saying that it may inspire teens to take their lives, even if it didn't inspire them. I hadn't considered that this permission that, that Gladwell talks about in Tipping Point, that he may have unconsciously given to struggling teenagers. And let's be honest, when we're teenagers, we all struggle at some point in some way or another. Um, maybe we exaggerate our problems as, as such because of a TV show. I don't know. It is true, though, that the reports are almost a 30% increase in teen suicides after the show's launch. After the criticism, Netflix added a viewer warning card before the first episode, and they also added this uh, language publicizing uh, the website 13reasonswhy.info, which offers resources for people contemplating suicide. With this in mind, 
I had to return to my surprise in finding that in order to prevent suicide, a large number of media outlets and social media users were talking about the number of people committing suicide, which in my opinion risks giving this unconscious permission. Like it's almost kind of peer pressure by association. Like look how many people are doing it. There's your unconscious permission. I don't know. There's something that really doesn't sit well with me about it with this knowledge about this. I'm by no means an expert. So I tried to do some research and looked it up. Um, I don't know. There does seem to be very little scientific evidence that media campaigns do reduce suicide. And in fact, there's mounting evidence that they don't. The largest and most sound review of, of the issue was Suicide Prevention Strategies, a systematic review published in the Journal of American Medical Association. The authors found that despite the popularity as a public health intervention, the effectiveness of public awareness and education campaigns in reducing suicide behaviour has not been systematically evaluated. That's to say that no one's really doing any great research into whether these campaigns work or not. Another study in 2009 in the Psychiatric Services Journal looked at 200 publications between 1987 and 2007 describing depression suicide awareness programs targeted at the public and found the programs contributed to modest improvement in public knowledge and of attitudes towards depression or suicide. But there was no evidence that the campaigns actually helped increase care seeking or, or decrease suicidal behaviour. A similar study in 2010 in the journal Crisis actually found that billboard advertisements, you know, the big by the road signs, these billboard advertisements had negative effects on adolescents, making them less likely to to go and find help or to, to get behind help-seeking strategies. In fact, I believe that such efforts should be focused on raising awareness of of mental health issues and what little support with mental health issues people are getting and also encouraging more conversation around mental health trying to remove the stigma from it so that more people go out and get support in it and this is really the angle we need to go in is this kind of in my opinion uh, and based on what little research admittedly i've done that we need to be talking about the issues surrounding suicide you know the mental health so that people go and get the help they need not because they're feeling suicidal but because they're perhaps at risk of a mental health issue. A Canadian newspaper published a story saying that recent, very recently, uh, in fact in the last week, that 28% of men believe they could lose their job if they discuss mental health at work. Whilst research in the UK suggests that over half of employees who took a day off because of their mental health faked a physical illness to explain their absence because they were afraid of being judged, demoted or sacked. And I think that is exactly it. This is the problem that there's an attitude towards mental health or at least a perceived attitude that's to say that i you know people think that if they talk about mental health they will be judged maybe it's not the case i don't know but i think we need to make this mental health conversation a more normal thing so that people can speak openly if and when they are struggling another damning report by the independent claims that patients had to wait up to eight weeks before seeing a doctor eight weeks by that time, who knows what could have happened. Imagine someone suffering from mental health. They faked a physical illness because they're afraid of talking about it with their work colleagues or their boss. They've gone to seek help and they're made to wait eight weeks before there's a, an intervention that could, could help them. In my opinion, it's not good enough. This, this is the problem. The problem isn't talking about the number of suicides per year. The problem is talking about the help that people need or the lack of it. 
in addition, I think we need to build societies that are generally more caring and forgiving. I'm really worried that we're at a point where we're heading towards a system that's that's not working, where capitalism has made more and more people desperate, and they're living on the streets, they're relying on food banks, and in the meantime, they're watching the 1% grow richer. So, like, the poorest people are really suffering in a time that there doesn't need to be that much suffering because it's just about wealth distribution or the poor amount of wealth distribution. In parallel, whilst people are being disheartened in this way, safety nets such as the welfare state, national health services and social housing, they're declining, they're being pulled out from people and under people's feet, or they're just being made more and more difficult to, to get access to. Whilst all of this has a series of terrible social and economic impacts it also means that somebody's bad decisions or bad fortunes can have a real significant or, or dire consequences someone living maybe paycheck to paycheck for example paying rent and supporting his or her family not that it's particularly easy to support a family on a single paycheck these days according to several studies imagine this person suddenly falls ill or loses his or her job for whatever reason maybe through no fault of their own they find themselves suddenly in a very, very serious situation, a very negative situation, with access to welfare becoming harder and harder to get. Is it surprising that people would be looking for an easy way out here? This is what we should be focusing on, in my opinion, when we talk about suicide prevention. Not the terrible number of people who have sadly taken their own lives, but fixing the system, the healthcare system, the social or economic system, to support these people that are, are living now, and trying to give those people that are living now more options, give them access to the help they need, remove the stigma of people seeking that help they need. Because maybe it's not professional help always. Maybe it's just the ability to say to a friend or a family member, look, hey, I'm not doing okay here. Do you know? I, if that stigma's there, people aren't going to do that. I don't want to criticise suicide prevention campaigns too harshly their heart's definitely in the right place their intentions are good but with the small amount of evidence of the impact of these campaigns and the fact that they could making risk making things complicated we need to look at this as we're in it together we need to care for each other more we need to support each other and for goodness sake let's talk about the injustices in the world rather than the tragic symptoms of the problem it's a heavy subject to talk about i know but talking about these things, they're the only ways we're going to fix it. As Arkela says in his book Natives that I'm currently reading, again another book, and I recommend it. He talks about dealing with racism. And he says that we need to talk about difficult issues, be it racism, suicide, mental health, Brexit. I think if we're to tackle the big issues that we do face in society, we need to talk about all of them. Arkela says, and he's very eloquent and he speaks wonderfully, and I'm never going to do his words justice, but I'm going to try. He says, there would have been no political, moral, technological, medical, material, or mental progress ever in the fragile history of our species if people hadn't decided to confront difficult problems with dialogue and then action. Maybe in this suicide prevention awareness, maybe we're at the dialogue point rather than the action point. But we need to really make sure that dialogue is focused in the right way so that the correct action can be taken. Another big issue that has been playing on my mind is the impending climate disaster. 
if you've listened to other episodes, if you follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you will know that I'm going part-time vegetarian to try and cut down on meat, which as an industry is a big carbon consumer. The point has been raised to me that so is uh, arable farming, that parts of the Amazon are being burned down for arable land. But the deal with meat is that the meat, the animals need a space to grow as well as a space to grow the food. And so that's a whole double amount of carbon, double amount of space, double amount of, of workload before we even go through the processing of the meat, the transporting of the meat. It's it's an issue. For me, as an immediate, as something I can do immediately, I think this is an easy one. Like literally, as I've said before, I've cut down maybe two to three days a week of eating meat. Um, I don't know what the impact is. It's something I should look up. But a UN and international, no, intergovernmental panel on climate change, the IPCC, study uh, recommended that going vegetarian is something that we all need to consider if we're going to put a dent in this. I do believe that it's just one thing. We need to take care and deal with plastics. That's another thing. Uh, but a lot of the big, a lot of the changes that can have the most impact have to be institutional. We have to have government legislation making changes and making changes to big businesses and imposing and enforcing these changes. It's the only way it's going to happen, in my opinion. But it all starts with individual action. And this is mine. This is what I have chosen to do. I'm not forcing on anyone, um, except maybe Patri, because I cook for her. But it's what I think should be done. And like I say, it's an easy, easy solve, an easy win for me. And I think if we all cut down on meat just one to two to three days a week, that would have a fair old impact. Those things add up. I have discovered, though, this week that lab-grown meat has taken huge strides. Now, I remember reading about lab-grown meat probably some five years ago when scientists used stem cells to create pain-free and low-carbon emission burger. It did, however, cost an absolute fortune. And, of course, there was plenty of controversy about whether lab meat was safe or healthy or natural, similar to this absurd GMO conversation of, like, was it early 2000s? I remember seeing it a lot, like, as a kid in supermarkets, like, genetically modified foods. These are these foods are non-GMO, non is it? GMO-free? I don't know. Organic, non-GMO. GMO is just one of those things that that's literally saving the world. Like, corn... Corn is a very important product. Uh, we use it for oil, we use it for fuel, we use it to feed animals, we use it to eat, we use it to process various other things. Corn has been genetically modified to be resistant to bacteria, to illness, and also to grow faster and more efficiently. The GMO is a good idea. <laughs> just just check it out. Uh and then, of course, with lab-grown meat, there was also these doubts from like the, the meat-eating purists, which was me once upon a time, uh, of whether it would live up to the expectation of being real meat. Like, I want a real meat in my burger. I, for one, I've been down to eat lab meat from the very beginning, at least just to try it. My, my attitude to all things food is I don't want to look back and think I could have eaten that. In the past couple of years, though... Um, we have seen the meatless burger grow into fame with the Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods burgers. Have you seen those? The Beyond Meat burger and the Impossible burger. I'm not going to lie. I don't know how they work. It's a vegetarian meat substitute. Uh, but apparently it has the real texture of meat. And apparently it's good. It's caused quite a stir. Apparently it's healthy, environmentally friendly. Good. Win-win, you know. And it's delicious, apparently. So win-win-win. 
Now, though, it seems that lab-grown meat is back. Amy Rowett, an associate professor of integrative biology and physiology at the University of California, explains that all the food we eat is made of cells. So developing lab meat is just a natural fit. So I guess it's developing anything, you know. She explains in real simple layman's terms that cells are taken from an animal's muscle and put into what's kind of like a nutrient-rich broth so that it sort of encourages them to multiply and grow into muscle fibers. So basically, they're growing animal muscles in a dish, in a Petri dish. So it's real meat. Like, it's real animal muscle. But with one key difference is that animals don't have to be raised or killed to produce it. They just take some stem cells and grow more muscle cells. More meat cells. Like, it's literally growing meat, I guess. I don't know know how it works. I'd love to see it kind of in action. Maybe there's a YouTube video. Um... Rowett's determined to produce 1 billion quarter pound of burgers. She says it takes 1.2 million cows living for three years on 8,600 square kilometers of land before even slaughtering them, transporting them. So that's three years of feeding them, three years of homing them, um, homing them, housing them on 8,600 square kilometers of land before processing, transporting. Apparently, the same number of culture burgers would require the muscle stem cells of just one living cow, because they can take the stem cells from a living cow and the cow just regenerates them, I guess. Like it's an infinite supply of meat. Um, and they take only about a month and a half to grow. So that's like three years, 8,600 kilometers, square kilometers of land, slaughtering animals. Or one living animal, Stays living, month and a half, in a lab. The, the maths does itself, you know. Predictions are that lab meat could cost around three to six dollars per pound by 2020, and Rowett believes that cultured meat or lab meat will eventually be uh, more or less on par cost-wise with organic beef. Another selling point of lab meat is that it could actually be healthier than bad killing animal carbon-consuming meat. She says, imagine genetically modifying the cellular components so that they produce healthier molecules of your cult- of the cultured lab meat. For example, to make it lower fat or one with more healthy fats, omega-3s, to make it more delicious. I don't know, like the possibilities. What do you reckon? Could you eat lab meat? Do we really know what kind of meat we're eating anyway? We'll have to see how it pans out in the next five years, I guess. I'm happy to admit when I don't know stuff, but I do try and speak with an informed voice on this podcast. The two things that are important to me in this whole process of starting and recording a podcast every week and is that I'm authentic and true to myself, but that I also try and speak from an informed point of view. So if I see something on the internet, I'm like, oh, that'd be interesting for the podcast. I try and have a Google around, try and find some opposite opinions, try and maybe not even form an opinion, just try and find out stuff. Whilst often that informed point of view will probably come from internet research i I hate that i I do try and go for like reports and studies i promise uh books um i think i've quoted two books today that i've read in the past week or two um i do want to get some informed guests on here to share their opinion like i think it'd be cool not just to hear me repeating things that i've read but to have people come on and tell us so as i wanted to talk about the 2019 japan rugby world cup which kicks off this friday i thought who better than to get my good friend matt who can come in and talk to us about what to expect. So hello, Matt. Hello. How, how are you? 
Yeah, good, thanks. Glad to be on. You're the first guest on the Last Palabra podcast. Oh, what a thrill. <laughs> thanks for coming on and talking rugby. Ah, it's always a pleasure to discuss certain things, especially rugby. So what's what's kind of your, your connection to rugby? Should we go for that, that first? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> started playing at five. Uh, stopped playing sporadically in my later years. So I'm now 30-ish. Um, currently coaching. <laughs> 30 years. Well, you get close enough, don't you? Then you might as well say it. You might as well say it. So, I'm closer than you are, but hey. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, started coaching, coaching at a regional level now, which is uh, which is fun. Um, and then still involved grassroots through university section, so that's uh, that's also enjoyable. So it's fair to say that you're like a lifelong fan of rugby. Uh, very fair, yeah. So you're fairly well qualified, at least you know from the point of view of the fan, if not from the being, having played it and coached it, um, to talk about about the Japanese Rugby World Cup coming up. Absolutely, I, fairly. <laughs> you're, you're using these terms very loosely. <laughs> fairly. Uh, so it kicks off on Friday, right? It does indeed. Yeah, somewhat anticlimactically. I, you've uh, you've pointed out before. Well, I was tipped off by you, and so that was why I was like, rather than me talking about it, I may as well bring you on and get it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Yeah, so, I mean, with the Olympics a few years back, we know that the uh, the opening ceremony is going to be a, a massive spectacle. Um, and then to have that followed up by, by Japan versus Russia, which, you know, it's it's not a dream fixture, let's put it that way. I mean, previous years, it's just been absolute world beaters playing absolute world beaters, and it's... It's sort of almost lived up to the hype, but I feel this year it's just gonna, it's gonna struggle. So I want to just back up a second to the the opening ceremony. Do you think this is going to be like a warm up for for Tokyo twenty twenty, the Summer Olympics? I believe so. I mean, you think about all these big events; it's just basically one country just showing what they can, what they can achieve, and what they can show the rest of the world. And I don't think Japan's going to be any different. So after the opening ceremony, Japan Russia, Russia had a mare in recent matches. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, their run up hasn't so, been the most successful, let's put it that way. They they've lost to local clubs, right? Isn't that the Yeah, I mean the difficulty is when when looking to to push for a, a World Cup bid, it's it's difficult to strike the balance between um a successful run and then also uh basically making sure that you're putting the best team out at the right times. So they will be looking for, for various players that may not make their starting 15 during the World Cup, but at the same time, if you're going to be on the world stage, you, you need to be able to beat um, a, a reasonably good second-tier English team in, in, say, Jersey Reds that they lost to a matter of days ago. So what, who else is in the, the Japan-Russia group? Do you know? We know that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we do. So let me pull that up. <laughs> Go on. So Japan, Russia, both in Pool A. So alongside Ireland and Scotland, um, with Samoa as well. Um, so not necessarily the most competitive pool. It has to be said in this World Cup, with Ireland and Scotland both not really competing too well. But Ireland are going into this ranked number one in the world, right? They are. Um, but if you look back across the, the media of the last few weeks, you'll see that there's there's loads of people giving their uh, their opinion on on the world ranking system, um, and although more often than not it's fairly um, respective of, of where international rugby is, 
um, in the lead up to a World Cup, you've got so many teams putting out so many different sides that the results don't really, um, they aren't really representative of what that team is capable of. So I think it's fair to say so the current. Yeah, go ahead. Like the current rankings, the current rankings don't reflect the reality. Well, the way you've got to think about it, if, if Ireland played New Zealand tomorrow, who would win? With the way Ireland played in their last few games, it's not been the most inspiring rugby. Um, and because various other things have happened in the lead-up, it means that various different teams are in different ranking positions. So they get different points for the, the wins that they've had. So they're beating Wales, although it was a dire game, not really much to take away from it. Winning that game put them top. So, that, But they've not faced New Zealand in the run-up to this, to, to earn that top spot, as it were. <sighs> Thinking back to the last time they played New Zealand, I think the... They beat them in in America in their in their one-off game. That was a, that was quite a triumph. But again, it will always be described, I think, as a one-off. I think it's very rare that the island would be in a position to go into a game against New Zealand and be favourites. Makes sense. That's understandable. So Pool A then: Ireland, Scotland, Japan, Russia, and Samoa. Anything we can yes. expect of the home the home side? Uh, given last World Cup with their their victory over South Africa, I think there's always chance of an upset. Um, I think they'll probably top Russia, um, and the Samoa game I think will be very close. Um, but you know the, the Pacific nations are always up for a keen for an upset in, in World Cup situations, being the the underdog quite often and, and sort of the forgotten nation of the World Cup. Um, but I feel Ireland should top that group, um, and you never know with Scotland. Scotland could could come second, could come come fifth in that group. Um, so it's it's one of those that's very open. So looking at the other pools, Pool B, obviously is New Zealand with South Africa in that one. That's a pretty challenging pool, especially for the other teams there, Italy, Namibia and Canada. Exactly, yeah. Um, you wouldn't want to be one of those three. No, that, that story's pretty much already, already written, I'd imagine. The headlines are already done. Yeah, it's either South New Zealand <laughs> at the top of that and the other one's going through on a, the best runner-up stage. I feel the, the games between the other three nations, I think, are, are fairly uneventful, I'd have to say. Okay, so a little action in, in Pool B. Yeah, I, I see whitewashes across the board and then a very competitive game. So it's been largely said that maybe Pool C, like England's pool, is the, the more competitive one. Am I right in thinking that? I'd say Pool, pool C, Pool D. Um, with Pool C, obviously, you've got France and, Argent France and Argentina. Um, Argentina not been on the, the best run of, of form, arguably, since the last World Cup. I mean, they broke onto the, uh, the, world, the Rugby Championship and they've just not been able to hit the heights that they were expected to, um, which is, is surprising given the fact that a large group of those players played together at Jaguares um, in the uh, the top flight of Super Rugby. And so what do you think England's kind of outlook is for for this pool? Or at least getting past the pool stages, as it were? I, my personal opinion, they'll, get, they'll ease their way through the group. Their only stumbling block, I believe, could be France. Because obviously no one really knows how the French are going to travel. Um, they had a decent run-up to, to this World Cup um, with a very, very dominant performance over Scotland, um, albeit Scotland were, were fairly poor in that game. But they're sort of getting back to their their flamboyant best, um, the, the kind of players that you'd have seen in the 90s and early 2000s where they were just running teams ragged with this style that's sort of, it's undefendable and... It's similar to the kinds that you'd expect from the, the Samoans, the Fijians, the Tongans, in that they're just so open and willing to play. It's it's something really great to watch, but 
not often too successful on the uh, the international stage where rugby is very much based around structure. What, what do you mean based around structure? What's the like set plays? So yeah, structure doesn't generally relate specifically to set piece. Um, a team can be far more structured throughout a game, even in open play. Um, so the manner in which they'll play from specific positions on the pitch is dictated before the game's actually started. Whereas these these more flamboyant teams like the French and the Pacific nations, they'll, they'll quite often be very willing to just play a very open, um, less structured game. They're often coming from their roots in sevens. I mean, maybe not for the French, but with the, the way the game develops in those Pacific nations and a massive emphasis put on their sevens development through uh, specific skill development, they're... Uh, they're more likely to play that open game because it's what they're used to. And so is that kind of a common thing to look at, to have really different styles from country to country? Or from sort of more, not maybe country, but like area to area? Absolutely. Um, the Obviously, we've said that the Pacific nations are very open to play, but they're also very physical. Um, the same can be said for a lot of African nations. Um, and I think we'll expect that from both Namibia and South Africa this year. Um, with both massive teams and they're both very dominant um, or both perceived very dominant packs. So they'll base a lot of what they do around a, a big set piece and massive defensive effort. Okay. And so then looking at Paul, the Australia are probably the standout in there maybe? Um, yeah, Australia, I would say Australia, so. Wales, Georgia, Fiji and Uruguay. Yes. Similar to uh, to Paul B, I reckon there's a, there's a competitive game in there and then three teams that sort of trying to keep up. I think Fiji will probably come out on third position with Georgia and Uruguay um, bringing up the rear. Again, Georgia, they had this uh, this surge into the international stage where the, their attempts to get into the Six Nations and obviously the, the things that have happened around the, the global game in terms of their world record attempts to get this um, international competition going year-round. So basically trying to, to marry up the leagues of rugby. Um, which unfortunately failed, but we'll see where that goes in the future. Okay, so it looks to me like, I mean, I'm I'm just a casual fan, <laughs> which is why I thought I'd refer to you in this. Uh, it seems to me there's kind of like two major players in each pool, then backed up by kind of maybe one one or two that could cause an upset, and and then kind of one that seems like an easy win for the major players. Does this mean we could see some of the kind of the bigger teams not progressing from the pool stages? Um, I don't think so. I don't. People are saying that this is going to be a very open World Cup, but what I think that means is there's good, there's still going to be a disparity between Tier One and Tier Two nations. It just means that there are more people in that more teams in that Tier One bracket that are likely to have a chance of winning. So Ireland, New Zealand, South Africa, England, Australia, Wales, France. You could see them having a decent run of games and, and getting to that final, um, whereas in the past. It's it's been very limited. There've been very specified favourites for the each World Cup, often New Zealand, and I mean that that's pretty evidential in the fact they've won three already. So um, so yeah, it's it's definitely an open World Cup, but I think people need to specify the difference between an open World Cup between the two tiers. In that the tier two nations, I still don't think have a chance. We have to remember four years ago, though. Of course, England got we got knocked out at our home World Cup. We don't have uh, to So remember. there's always that chance for upset. We don't have to remember. <laughs> we can look past that. <laughs> yeah. I think that was a it was a particularly dark time in, in English rugby. Um, 
with obviously there was the contention between the selection um with certain players certain rugby league players being being taken to that world cup but it was a perfect storm of of terrible displays of rugby and some off field issues with the press and media putting a lot of pressure on a select few players could it be fair to say that then maybe england like our team is going back there now wanting to make prove a point you know to kind of avenge this massive loss last time out especially after you know we had a, a fairly strong six nations performance and you know is that something we can base our expectations on i think so yeah we must also think back to what um eddie jones has said over the last however many years he's been involved since the last world cup basically he's he's always said that everyone must judge him on his his world cup um so the fact that he got to he won the six nations the fact that he's had various successes maybe not necessarily in the last um, last year or so but everything he's done has been geared towards the world cup i know that everything in his training ground is geared towards the world cup um not that he's been looking past games but um, the idea that everything has happened in the last four years has pushed them to be in a better position to win this year. Um, so the team itself, it, it's it's very, very different in their makeup. I think England itself has a much better balance this year. What, what do you make of the England squad then? I'm, I'm looking at it now. I've, I've got it in front of me. And... Aside from a couple of players, well, maybe a handful of players that have got like one, two, I think there's maybe what, two uncapped players in there, one uncapped player in there. We're looking at a fairly seasoned squad with maybe a few players thrown in that have got maybe like a, a dozen cap, uh, dozen international teams or so. Yeah. So I think looking at that squad, I think it's it's fairly easy to, well, fairly easy. I mean, with Eddie Jones, he'll, he'll probably pick something incredibly maverick for that first game. Um, obviously, the first two games, expecting to win. Um, it's it's difficult to really say what he's going to select. But um, moving into what should be the latter stages, you can you can mould generally what that team's going to look like. And I can't imagine there'll be too many um, lesser-capped players playing in, in the latter stages, except for injury. I think we'll see, see various players with, with 50, 60 caps. So the team itself is not not lacking in experience um but on the opposite side they've got some very young players they're going to be very hungry to to perform obviously if you saw in the warm-ups with uh, lewis ludlam who's a northampton saints one one cap and outstanding in that game physically dominant and really wanted to stamp his mark on the game so i think we've got incredibly good experience and then also some some depth with some really young really talented and hungry players so you've pointed out Lewis Ludlam, and this is something that, I mean, I think this happens in, in a lot of sports, actually, when it comes to, like, a world stage, that there's a, a standout mm. player that kind of becomes a hero, you know, and bringing it home, if it, as it were. Um, and often, you know, kind of a new player to the squad rather than a, a seasoned veteran, as it were. Uh, what I mean, do you think there's a reason for that, firstly? And then, you know, is that something we could expect? This, uh, I think with newer players to to a squad, your expectations are slightly lower to say a seasoned, um, highly capped player. Um, I don't think there's going to be much expectation on them. I think the expectation is going to be around these these players, such as your your, your Joe Marlers, who's come back into the squad, fifty eight caps. You've got 
players like Dan Colin around that squad, 86 caps. Um, you've got, obviously, the, the Vinopola brothers who are up around 50 caps. Um, obviously led by Owen Farrell, who's still fairly young, has got 70 caps himself. I think that those are the players that they're going to base these teams around. Um, and then the other players will sort of um, complement them quite well. I would say there's a significantly less pressure on those players, which allows them the, the freedom to play as, as you wouldn't expect them to on a high stage. Yeah, I guess they just have to go out and impress. You know, there's no... There's nothing to lose for them Absolutely. at this point. They're there. They're on the world stage. They're playing. They're playing at the yeah, peak of the and sport. Almost, you know, they're young sportsmen. And young sportsmen, generally speaking, have got no issue with confidence, and obviously slightly a uh, expanded ego almost. But <laughs> I wouldn't expect any of them to uh, to be lacking in that department. I guess that makes sense. So you've kind of given us a breakdown of, of the Japan-Russia, the first game on Friday. Uh, I'm looking at the fixtures. The, the kind of big standout match over the weekend seems to be That'll New be Zealand, huge. South Africa. I think with that game, whoever comes out on top there, I would put down as favourites. Um, obviously, South Africa have had a, a pretty impressive lead-up and they're, they're sort of peaking at the right times um, with a certain amount of controversy over recent weeks with the with the steroid scandal, um, but as a, as a squad they're moving in the right direction, and a, a strong performance against New Zealand will really put them in a very good position to to progress fast. And it's for the winner anyway. It's going to be a, a very good place to to have that game at the start of a group where you you're expected to win, and if you do win, you're then having that followed up by certain games where you can maybe rest some players, get some good rotation going. Exactly, and then ride that high through to the uh, to the knockout stages. So, what what's the biggest pressure on on these players as they go literally to the other side of the world and and are competing on this this world stage? What you know, from an individual point, what's what are they up? Against? A massive part of it is is the media and the media spotlight. Um, if they're they're managed well, and for England, obviously, Eddie Jones takes a lot of that slap by. He says some controversial things, and his justification that in the past has been to take the, the limelight off his players so they can focus on their rugby. So if that's done successfully, I think there's the, the pressure itself reduces significantly. I know previous years, obviously, there have been certain scandals that have followed people around with Anu Tuolangi taking on uh, Freddie Flintstone with his... Oh, Freddie Flintstone... <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, with um, in recent years with with Manu Tuolangi, um donning the pedalo like a certain Freddie Flintoff, and you've got uh, Mike Tindall in the past has been hounded by the media on on occasions with you know yeah all kinds of midgets that kind of thing. <laughs> but as long as players can be kept out of that limelight, I think they're in a, in a good stead to really perform well on the pitch. But from the point of the view of the fans, like the sport is one thing, but kind of seeing these personalities is is a whole other thing. And I don't know. I guess maybe I don't know. A lot of fans, I think, live for that as well. You know, it's it doesn't help. It fuels well, yeah. the, the I mean, you, machine, as it were. You've got millions of people living vicariously through these people. They they want to know everything that's going on and everything they're doing in preparation. They want to obviously have their their idea of what they should be doing. 
and in order to have that opinion you you need all the information so you can understand why the media gets so um invested in such a such a massive competition um but i do think that's at the detriment to to the team performing so it's it's a difficult position to be in because obviously the news the media outlets want to to uh obviously they want the more clicks they want much more attention which brings them more money um some of them you might argue would want england to fail because then they can write more explosive pieces about how certain things contributed to the downfall and you saw that with the the unfortunate last world cup where they, they were clearly knocked out at the early stages and and then that was an absolute media frenzy so i think that's going to be key in, in terms of progressing forward um, managing the media and making sure that your players are staying out of the limelight by whatever means necessary really and I think England rugby seem to be. I mean, I understand it. I, uh, firstly, I, I get that uh, point completely. Um, perhaps in my line of work as well, I'm a, a perpetrator of this as, as you know, much as anyone else. Um, and it is a fine line to toe. Uh, but I think England rugby are doing a pretty good job of kind of setting the team up well. I mean, I saw the other day that that is it Manu Tagalagi's got like a podcast with them and. He was talking about like, yeah the O2 reviews. inside line. It's actually it's, it's, it's like, pretty good. And it's a, it's an interesting way of dealing with it where you just hit everything head on, so you don't really give the the newspapers any chance to really get involved too much because you're releasing everything yourself. And it's it's with obviously the growth of podcasts as you know, um, it's a great way to get things out into the to the media universe just by um, by staying in front of everything. So there's nothing that's going to come back and bite you on the backside basically. Yeah, exactly. They kind of they keep the press fed. They're not going to go hunting for anything, you know. It's far. I guess that's the yeah, idea. There's, uh, and there's some some good listening. I've uh, <laughs> I've had many a days on work while I've been uh, while I've been listening to such podcasts. So it's yeah, it's definitely keeping me involved. There you go. When you finish this, <laughs> hop on over to O2 Inside Line. Going back to this this kind of first weekend lineup, then we've we've pointed out uh, New Zealand, South Africa on Saturday. France Argentina also uh, on Saturday. Any, any expectations? This has the, the opportunity to be a really good game or an absolutely terrible one. It just depends which French side decides they want to travel, whether they're going to be competitive or not. Um, I do see it going France's way, um, but again, Argentina they've always been able to thrive on the on the big stage. Um, but I think France will take that one. Will the result or the performance for France kind of again? It's difficult their, to say. Their campaign. Um, the French are very temperamental both in rugby and generally their being. So <laughs> when it comes to, to the later stages, you, you never know which, which team's going to turn up. Like I said before, it's it's a strange, they could be world beaters or they could just be absolutely dreadful. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the manner in which they play with with the just this, the lack of structure and almost trying to embed structure on players that don't thrive on structure has this catastrophic um turn of events basically where you just capitulate and players don't want to play and and we've seen that in recent years and then the other match of, of saturday the second yes. day is australia fiji. very interesting i mean australia has to be the favorites going into that one but fiji could cause an upset i guess absolutely kind of i mean fiji they're renowned for their their physical and their their emotive style of rugby where they're playing this this rugby to to treat the crowd almost um, and it's something quite lost on on international rugby um but it's amazing to see so i believe there'll be a lot of people supporting fiji and it'll be just about everyone that's not australian 
Um, but again, I, I do see Australia coming out on top there. Um, <laughs> they've just been... I just think they'll be too strong with too many good players across the park to, to fall there. But fingers crossed for an upset. Looking to day three then, Italy-Namibia, any expectations for this in terms of as a, a match to watch? It's a or, tough one. Or result? Italy, probably edging it for me. Um, Namibia, they're, they're kind of one of these hopeful outcasts sort of on the outside of the top tier of international rugby. Um, they've been poking away, same as Georgia. It's, it's a similar situation. But I think Italy have been playing on, on the bigger stage a bit too long. With their involvement in the uh, in the Six Nations, I think they'll just they'll clinch that. Uh, Ireland, Scotland. This is a, an interesting one. Um, I guess Six Nations is probably the best predictor for. Yeah, um, it's possibly the game I'm I'm looking forward to least in the opening round. Um, Ireland, although like you say, they're number one ranked in the world, have been pretty dire recently. They've squeezed out a win against Wales and just not been playing attractive rugby. Um, and Scotland, they've just struggled, um, with the exception of one performance against Georgia and maybe like one second half against England. They've just not been up to par. Um, so I think we're in for a fairly dire game with Ireland coming out on top. England Tonga, the big, mm. the big one of of Sunday, really. Uh, England to win, um, but I believe they'll have the bigger bruises on the Monday morning. <laughs> just the, the sheer, sheer size, size of, of every pack. single player. The Tongas have got a, a, a big point to prove after um, their massive loss to New Zealand. Um, and I know it's a, it's a proud nation, so they're going to want to come back and they're going to want to absolutely smash someone. So, yeah, I see England as favourites, but it helped take quite a beating in the process. And the final one is kind of the first the first round of the pool stages. Uh, Wales, Georgia. Yeah. It'll be interesting, be interesting very interesting, um, with obviously Wales, again, another one of the, the number one ranked teams over the last few weeks. Um, so yeah, Georgia, they're an interesting one, obviously, putting Graham Roundtree to sort of shore up their scrum because, you know, nothing is more scary than a big forward pack, but then a, a big forward pack that actually knows what they're doing at the, at the, at the scrum and, and line-out is just going to be an absolutely dangerous prospect for anyone coming up against them um so i i'm not sure what to expect from from georgia apart from the the obvious physicality and and big big scrum um so it should be interesting again still see wales coming out on top there just the the names they've got across the board i think even with a few injuries they're they're still too strong for for georgia so, kind of what you'd expect then for this kind of the first round, if you like, you know, all, all the favourites are pretty clear, aside from maybe the New Zealand. Yeah, I think so. Um, and Hart says South Africa in those, but yeah, I don't think we're we're in for many upsets. Okay, I think that's a fairly good roundup of the the first week and what you know. Well, yeah, it we uh, should be fun. Year. I'm looking forward to it. Fancy coming back next week and uh, Absolutely. break I'll down see what happened on that first round? Pleasure. Thanks, I'll, Matt. Uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to episode four of the Last Palabra podcast. Thanks for Matt for joining me. Um, as always, like, share, subscribe, but most importantly, 
reach out, say hello. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, as well as email, thelastpalabra at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for joining us. Join us next week for episode five of The Last Palabra Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>